Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey, Danilo from Thinking Critically here. Thinking Critically is a chat show podcast where we take a single concept or idea and discuss what it means within the Dungeons & Dragons framework. Each episode features a different guest from the TTRPG community, and so far I've welcomed actors, designers, and professional DMs. Consider it an NPR-style variety bucket of thought-provoking analysis and humorous anecdotes, where we cover all sorts of things, including the nitty-gritty of how to balance encounters, the perception of D&D in popular culture, and the impact it has on mental health. My hope is that each episode helps you get the most out of your sessions, whatever side of the screen you sit on. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and visit me at thinkingcritically.co.uk. Welcome everybody to the second part of our uh, Warlock Extravaganza. Uh, We spent last week talking about uh, the a handful of the uh, Eldritch Invocations that are available to the Warlocks and the various packs that they can pick. Tonight, we are going to be diving into the patrons, uh, and we're going to use our normal subclass ranking mechanic that we use uh, to go ahead and discuss those. And so, once again, welcome, Lewanika Glenn. Welcome back, and glad to be talking some more Warlock with you this evening. Hello, everyone. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back. So, Glenn... What are you looking forward to most in this particular episode, do you think? So for the warlock, honestly, mostly I'm looking for the discussion I'm looking forward to the discussion between you and Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that because this is a class that so far has been full of fun discussion and uh, interesting takes and kind of uh, agreeing without agreeing because you're both just arguing two different pieces of yeah. diff- arguing from different story perspectives, which was really interesting. Um, But I'm going to be honest. I have not yet played a warlock. My primary entry or my primary uh, experience going through the class was when I built Desdemona for our DMs guild NPCs. The first set we put out uh, from the lineages uh, of Ravenloft. Yeah. And I'm finding them really interesting, but I also haven't had a lot of experience playing with them in five E yet either. So far one player play a warlock. It was Lee Wanika. So my experience with him is a little bit light. So I'm really, really interested to see what you all have to say on him. In terms of the patrons, 
I'm kind of in a love it or hate it kind of place. Like for all of them, it was either I liked it <laughs> and it sparked my imagination or I thought it was total crap. Totally. Agree and I'll you. tell you yeah. why, but I don't have, I won't have huge expounding amounts of information on most of it. I found for the most part that there were a couple extraordinary ones. There was a lot of middle of the road for me that just that just seemed way too similar with itself. Hell and yeah. there was there was one there's one that I thought sucked out loud, and I thought that it sucked out loud for a very particular reason. And so we'll, we'll get there uh, when we crack in there. So you sure didn't do it quite. No, early. it was loud. If it's the one I'm thinking of, it was it was loud as f. Yeah, I think it. Uh, yeah, I think it's the one. I think I think all three of us uh, actually agreed that this particular one uh, sucked out loud. So that's a that that if the three of us agree, that tells you something. <laughs> you know, with warlocks, I love them. Like when I first started playing five e, there was something about it that I'm like, this is interesting. The one thing I will say about warlocks, and this is where the true challenge comes into it, if you're a player, how cool a warlock is is probably more dependent on your storyteller and their campaign setting more so than any other class. What your storyteller gives to your patron and puts into your patron, your level of interaction with the NPC that is your patron, uh, whether they're tasking you, whether they're antagonistic towards you, or what have you, has everything to do with all of the RP flavor of this class. So it is something to keep in mind when you're playing them. There are some of these subclasses that work well with some types of storytellers and not well with others. Uh, I have had the benefit of when I've chosen to play Warlocks, I have had, I have had really good storytellers. Glenn was amazing with the one I, with the one I played in his game. And I will talk about that when we get to that subclass because it is among, it is among my favorites. The one I'm playing currently, I'm brand new at it. So we're going to see where it goes. Uh, but so far, just based on the session zero type discussions, I know I'm going to love what I'm doing right now. So uh, it, it's going to be really good. Let's go ahead and dive in here. So like always, we are going to go through the subclasses in order of their appearance in the books. So we're going to start tonight with the player's handbook. And gentlemen, if you don't mind, I'm going to take the uh, the discussion for the Archfey to start because I have found an anomaly. An anomaly among the Warlock class. The anomaly is that the first subclass in the first book that we're going to uncover, for me, was the best of the nine subclasses. The Archfey Patron was absolutely my favorite. Now, it was close. There was another one that was that I thought was also exemplary, but this one was my favorite. I thought that Misty Escape was a fantastic power. I thought that uh, that something that we have been asking for in other subclass rankings um, is a nice progression of powers as the as the character levels along. You know, I thought that this showed it. I thought as you know, the progression impacts the action economy, where you get actions that become reactions. You start to be able to go ahead and do things faster, or things last longer. And the the alpha power was really high on flavor, even though it was. Fairly light on mechanical benefit, and so I fairly okay. All right, so there's there's not. We're talking about dark. It's delirium. crap. You get a one minute charmer frightened at fourteenth level. It's utter crap. All right, all right. That's uh, the that's, only negative I had about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In any case, this is actually this was what I thought was the strongest of the of the subclasses, and so that's really going to say something. I think. So go ahead, Glenn. 
that was pretty much my main my main difference of opinion on you actually just level 14 ability is crap high on flavor low on mechanical benefit <laughs> yes uh, but and it doesn't even give you a good idea what to do with that flavor like it the name of the ability sounds cool right it's dark delirium i'm like yes they're gonna take some psychic damage or something no no uh, you plunge them into a dark nightmare. They can't see or hear anything but you and the illusion. But the only effect is they're charmed or frightened by you for one. Yeah, minute. no, I, I agree with you. I, I'm I'm gonna do something that I don't normally do. I'm gonna talk about that negative before I bring in my positives because I want to end this on a high note because I do love the subclass. Oh, I do too. Just that. It, it, here's the issue: charm is so easily resisted. How easy is it to resist? I play a damn half elf and I get advantage. How easy is it to resist? I play an elf and I can't, and it can't happen. That is true. That is true. And an entire lineage of people can't be charmed. That's true. I play any fey ancestry, and it doesn't bug me. Uh, your hex, your hex, your uh, hags, whole subsets of monsters. Nah, so much so that it can't even affect the type. Of creatures that it is based upon. <laughs> Mechanically, that is weak sauce. This isn't even sauce. It's water. Yeah. I mean, it, it is water with a couple lumps of flour. Um, it is really not that great. Don't, don't knock the water with a little bit of flour as I'm sitting here drinking my non-alcoholic beer. Come on now. Enjoy that non-alcoholic beer. I drink decaf coffee. It's like the same thing. So I turn around and, and I say that, but I want to go to this. I, like, I love the Fae. And I so love the play, the Fae that I, this is a fantastic subclass. As strong as it is, have so many flavorful things uh, and so many really well-designed features as a whole that this just kept dropping in the ranks. I did with this subclass ranking the same thing I did with the others. I started in order. And I kind of picked numbers, right? One through nine. Where did I think this would? And I love, and I love this subclass, right? So it yeah, was same. right. I'm at, with it, you. It was right at the top. And then every time I got to another subclass, it was like, okay, is that better or worse than Archfake? Well, it's definitely better. And then it just kept getting dropped, and it kept getting dropped, and it kept getting dropped, all the way to the point where its mechanics fell to number five, its flavor fell to number six, and I wouldn't have thought that going in. When I mentioned in our one of our conversations in the weeks prior to this that as I was getting my notes together, something really surprised me about Warlocks. This is what I'm talking about. How far this fell in the ranks for me was an utter shock. And it's not because it's bad. It's just so many other things were better. So many other things were better. And that's, that's a great problem to have. And it was so much so that I ranked it very high for my wild card. And I ranked it very high for my play slash want to play. So I haven't played one yet, but I would really want to. I actually am a storyteller for a person who's playing a warlock who has an archfey as a patron. And that character is amazing. And I love what it's it's been able to do. I'm looking forward to that character growing some more. Uh, I, I think it's great. But man, it just doesn't measure up. It just doesn't measure up. And, and it is fantastic. There's so many good things about it that are just fun. Everybody needs to know. I love me some fave. Very similar problem. I started out with it ranked significantly higher. 
I mean, it didn't have high marks in mechanics because of that 14th level ability, but it kept dropping as I went further along because I started with it. But yeah, okay, but that's the 14th level power. Like we always say how how much and i know like I, like we've all like switched bodies now because i'm the one that's always says well the 14th level power is super good you know and you're all like but campaigns never go to 14th level so why are we caring about that i only care about one through ten you know so like that's why do we get to sound like idiots and you got to sound like a hero with your arms <laughs> because in the again because i because i've got the microphone that's, you know, yeah so. but i have one too <laughs> so <laughs> just to clarify <laughs> I think we probably need to stop having that particular discussion because I think as a group, we decided that we'd like to see the game move to more high level content, right? Yep. So if that's the case, I think we got to approach it from the aspect, from the perspective of expecting what we want. That That's a great argument that I fully stand behind. I dig it. All right, Glenn, let's carry on. What were your thoughts on The Fiend? Dude, I like The Fiend. Um, and I gave it my number 10 wild card because I'd never read it before and I wasn't expecting much, but it captured my imagination. It really, really did. And now I acknowledge that this is like your stereotypical made a deal with a demon or, or a devil, right? So in terms of sticking with a everybody's at least on the morally gray side of good style campaign, it does create a couple of challenges, but they're easily worked around with your storyteller. I mean, the thing that it brought to me was Ghost Rider. And I'm a huge Ghost Rider fan when I used to read comics. But a good guy bound to a demon but fighting against his will kind of thing, I loved it. Super strong flavor in the abilities too. But I think they went too far when they gave it gave you the ability to change your damage resistance on the daily. Um, I think that should stick with just like it's it's thematically set up as a fiend or a devil from the planes of some form of hell. Casting and bonus spells are all set directly along the fire path with Scorching Ray and Fireball, etc. The resistance should be fire, and that's it. You shouldn't have the ability to change it every day. Aside from that, though, I really, really liked the fiend. Yeah, my my big issue with fiend, with fiendish resilience, Lumineke, uh, uh, I'll let you go in just a second, because I don't have much to say about the fiend. I did not care for it. Part of the reason is because I didn't think that that level 10 ability, fiendish resistance, carries very well into tier 3. And it doesn't carry well into tier 3 for a very specific reason, because magical weapons ignore the resistance. I didn't care right. so much about the resistance changing. I thought that was actually kind of neat but the fact that a magic a, a level 10 power can be counteracted by any magical weapon doesn't matter what it is any magical weapon you're gonna be facing magical weapons in tier three like that's just the way yeah. that it is and so now your level 10 power is useless glossed over that in my brain but you're 100 right that's pretty crappy i did as well and and i run a, a low magic world and prefer to play or like playing in low magic worlds and even i would say at by time you get to tier three everybody's going to have magic weapons. With that as a guidepost, I should have ranked the mechanics down quite a bit from where they were. As it was, it was very high because most of the mechanics are great. You're not wrong, Glenn. Um, I would say as kind of a middle ground between what they have and what you're saying, just stick with fire. If it was fire and or necrotic, like you choose between those two, yeah. I think that might work. Okay, right. Or possibly psychic. Like maybe those three, fire, necrotic, or psychic. If it's stuck between those three, that would make sense. We could just drop that other part while we're rewriting it. We'll just drop off the other part. <laughs> no, exactly. I think give it one resistance that never changes and make it and, and drop the thing about magical weapons. Totally. I'm right. I'm right with yeah. you. Yeah. And, and here's the deal. As a homebrew storyteller, I would definitely say if you're going to play this, just be aware that's only going to work for these things. And I s suspect the player might be able to make an argument for force, but 
whatever. But other than that, yeah, you're not wrong, Glenn. You're not wrong. Dudes, I even liked the Ghost Rider movie with Nicolas Cage, and I realize I'm in the minority with that, but I really enjoyed it. Just have to go out on, just have to put myself out there. I will say this about the way I was ranking this. I marked, as much as I enjoyed the mechanics and I love the flavor on this, it's wild card was middle of the road for me. And have I, have I played or do I want to play was exceptionally low. And here's what I have to say about this. I, as a player, unless I'm playing a villain, unless we're doing a bad guy campaign, at which point I would definitely do this. I just don't do that often. Uh, and I've said we've said this before. It's not my bent to take a, a non-heroic character, and so for me, my desire to play a war a fiend warlock was very low, very low, because I just don't really have the need or desire to play this as a player, as a storyteller. That's why I took it to Ghost Rider, man. I want to play yeah. the dark hero. While I like Ghost Rider a lot. And John Blaze specifically, going back to comics, not necessarily movies, versus Dan Ketch or the newer one who had the car, uh, who, by the way, was awesome in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, I did really enjoy that. Yeah, I will say this. I can honestly say I hate Spawn. Like, never liked it. Yeah, I don't like Spawn either. Never liked Spawn. And that's what comes to my mind. If you're trying to play Dude, a hero I tried this, to like Spawn. I remember. I remember you trying. And I remember me saying, it's crap. That's just my take on it. I, don't at me. We all have our things. Lots of people, lots of people like it, and I don't take that away from them. It's not my bag. <laughs> but the last thing I got to leave you with on Fiend, because it's my absolute favorite 14th level ability of all of the patrons, Hurl Through Hell. That is the most evocative. If I hit you with an attack, I can teleport you through the lower planes, and you basically get a speed tour of hell right and the way i picture this is when you come back at the end of my next turn i picture you like constantine with keanu reeves the movie where he comes back at the end of the of the scene where he go where he takes his portal and he's sitting there like covered and he's just steaming and covered in soot and ashes so this guy that you just sent comes back like charred and, and smoking and takes 10d10 psychic damage from the experience i love it great flavor love the ability and i will say this it is probably one of the best capstone features for any subclass we've talked about thus far. 10, 10 d 10 psychic damage is not nothing. Like, that's for sure. Luminica, what do you think about the Great Old One? I want to like this more than I do. I don't. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, obviously, I ranked it very, very low. It, did, it didn't get high marks. I certainly don't want to play one. I don't even know if I would enjoy storytelling for one. And I have no interest in particularly running uh, an NPC that's one. I do think its abilities are moderately flavorful towards what they're trying for. But its mechanics, I think, really fall flat. But then again, I think this goes back to how do you do a Lovecraft story? We talked about this when we talked about Ravenloft. It is very difficult and it's not my bag. Uh, uh, it's just not my bag. Now, what's odd is I have read a few, uh, a small few Lovecraftian stories, and I have enjoyed them for what they are, but I don't tend to read horror. I didn't find it to be an experience that I want to repeat all the time. And when I'm playing a D&D &D character, I want to repeat that crap at least once a week, probably multiple times a week, looking at you play by post. Um, and I have no interest 
in visiting the twisted and unforeseenable and unknowable Eldritch on a regular basis. Uh, I, literally what it is is what takes it away from me. Uh, and I just don't think d and does that. I don't think d and does Cthulhu well in general. There's another game for that. It's called Call of Cthulhu. Yep. Okay, so I am. So I gave this the lowest score possible in our ranking system. I gave it. You four don't usually ones. do that either. I don't usually do that. I do do it from time to time, and I'm going to be very honest about why I did that. It is. It has almost nothing to do with the statistical or flavor makeup of the subclass. I really, really, really had a problem with the fact that all of its powers could be basically enacted, not just without any sort of check at all to go ahead and enable them, but they violate the rules of consent. And I really had a big, serious problem with that. The Awakened Mind in particular? Yeah, yeah. the first one? Yep. You know, um, But even even beyond that, when a uh, 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 create thrall, right? Uh, at 14th level, you gain the ability to infect a humanoid's mind with alien magic. You can use your action to touch an incapacitated human and take over their mind and, and, and make them a thrall. Right. Permanently until someone casts to remove curse on them. Yeah, I hate yeah. that one too. That that's those are the two that I have on here. Yep, I I thought that I thought that in a world where we are trying to be better, this is a subclass that is full of everything wrong that we're trying to get out of the game. And I really felt like I needed to go ahead and say something about. That. I could make a villain. I wouldn't even do that because while I could, if I were writing a novel and I wanted to write the evilest and worst kind of bad guy possible, and it's a novel. I might. When I'm playing a game and I'm putting it against other people and they're supposed to be playing their characters, I wouldn't do that. I think you're not wrong. And, and oddly, I didn't even look at it that way. I looked at it much more mechanically, much more player whatever way. And I think some of my aversion to this is probably or likely uh, the things you're mentioning, Josh, but you're not wrong. When we sit down and discuss our lines and veils, this is a, this is a bit of a hard line for me, right? As a storyteller, I rarely will use any magic ability, whether a character or monster type has it or not, to remove agency from a player. I don't do dominate. I may do something. I'm and if I do, it is I'm effectively going to do a whole person. I am not going to make you feel a different way. I don't do that. I want my players to have their agency. I don't want anybody leaving my table feeling that they didn't have control over what happened and whatever happened to their character. Look, my players don't think whatever happens to their characters could happen to them, but I don't want them ever leaving the table saying, man, I couldn't stop that and I couldn't do anything about it. And that's how I felt. I don't do those kinds of games. I don't want to do those kinds of games. And I certainly don't want to be a player in that kind of game. Let's move on from that because I really think the great old one is just an absolute dumpster fire. Let's talk and about- And I agreed with both of you like 100% just for my, my my one, two cents on it because what I literally have down is the fact that I'm not a, a fan of cosmic and Lovecraftian horror and this one drips with it. Creepy alien mind thing. And then that the abilities are jacked and the exact stuff we already talked about. So like we're all on exactly the same page about this one. It's crap. It needs to be removed. So moving on to so we move out of the player's handbook and we're going to move to the Sword Coast guide and talk about the Undying Patron. And the Undying Patron was again one of these kind of middle of the road options for me. Uh I thought that I thought that the Undying Patron for me sort of epitomized a problem that I 
problem is the wrong word, but a, a, a trend that I saw with these warlock patrons is that, boy, did they just push the envelope of being overpowered a little bit. Like a little bit, they were like right on that edge, and I thought that this one really did that too. I thought that you know, look at the first level ability. First level ability should be either a free cantrip or advantage on every disease check, and not both. Level six, overpowered, going to be very, very hard to kill this warlock at level six because of his ability to go ahead and basically automatically, you know, automatically succeed on on a death save, right? So. You and why would you ever use that power on anything other than your final death save? Because once you regain hit points, all your death saves reset, right? You know, level 10 power again, we saw high on flavor, low on benefit, and I thought that the class trailed off pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I found that pattern happening a lot kind of throughout these, these patron levels. So, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna double down on what you said and I'm gonna call you out. I don't think this was overpowered. I thought it was trash. And I'll tell you why. Really? Yeah. I think the spell list was mediocre. I think the first level powers uh, among the dead, spare the dying is a great cantrip. But uh, honestly, the rest of it is uh, at best situational. Uh, I, I just don't think it was that great. I, 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 I really didn't think it was good. I don't think the ability to go ahead and automatically pass a death saving throw and regain D8 plus your constitution modifier hit points. You don't automatically pass. Defy death is when you succeed, uh, not you automatically pass. When you yeah. succeed on a saving throw, you bounce back with 1D8 plus your constitution modifier. That's like ice block. You bounce back, so you're going to just get smacked the f back down again because uh. whatever hits you is still standing over the top of you. I thought that I thought that this one's abilities dripped with flavor and were reasonably well balanced. So we're on very different pages here. Yeah, I really just thought like, who cares? Honestly, your Constitution modifier at best is going to be four. Let's say you have four. Maybe you have something else that makes it really cool, so you got five plus a D8, so you're averaging nine points of hit points. That is the least scaling thing we've talked about in recent history. That is only useful pretty much the level you get it and maybe the next two levels. And after that, it's a hot pile of useless. That's never useless. It doesn't. The, the amount of hit points doesn't matter. The hit points isn't the point. The point is you just went down in the fight you don't have anybody who, if you don't have anybody that can heal you or put you in the spot where you're ready to go. If you're in the point of death saves, you succeed the first time. You can be back on your feet, back in the fight, whether it's to drink a potion, heal yourself, make an attack, get yourself out of harm's way. That doesn't need to scale. That doesn't need to scale. Whether you're 18th level or first level, once you're in death saves, you're in death saves. You fail three, you're dead. I agree. It makes you hard to kill. I find it extremely underwhelming compared to some of the other uh, six level abilities that we're going to have. I don't disagree with that statement. But yeah, I, I just find th this feature and the features that follow to be mediocre at best. I, I ranked it one out of nine for mechanics. Like, I just really, just really didn't like it. I absolutely, abjectly didn't like it. I agree that it's a little bit mediocre. I do, but it did inspire me, and I did enjoy the, the concept, and I'll, I'll talk about that part in a second. When you look at its abilities, 
all of them thematically work with what it's supposed to be, right? None of them are crazy overpowered or total crap. They all land in the mediocre category. Of them all, it's like the most evenly distributed and kind of balanced while still having coolness factor. It's super specific, like indestructible life. The only reason that it's an awesome 14th level ability is because you can reattach a severed limb. <laughs> That's a pointless ability. Unless you're playing in a homebrew world where a DM will allow limbs to be severed, there are zero right. raw mechanics for taking limbs. That means no they they give if you're you playing in my game and you choose this class and you get that ability, I'm going to cut your arm off because you can put it back on so that you have the opportunity to show that and you're going to love it and you're going to think it's cool and badass. And that's the only reason, though, it's the flavor that makes it good. The rest of it is kind of mediocre. I like aggressive Glenn. This is nice. It's nice to see. My bad. No, I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. no. You're, you're, good. you're, good. you're good. You're no. good. You're uh, good. Bring the fire. Yeah, so I got some other stuff going on. I got a lot of aggression going on. In my life at the moment in general, <laughs> He's working through some issues, so. everybody. Let's give Glenn a pass here. So let's uh, let's carry right on. Glenn, talk to us about the Celestial. So I like the Celestial, and it's kind of like a, a polar opposite to the Fiend, right? So so I get it. But the patron of a Celestial being is a cleric. Yeah, that is the definition of the cleric class. So while I like the Celestial patron and the one warlock that I've had experience with was a celestial warlock and it was played well and I enjoyed it in the game as a subclass. I find it as kind of a tropey attempt to throw a healer build into a class that doesn't yep. need it. I was going to say as the player of said celestial warlock, uh, who by the way took pact of the tome because that really is what kicked off that yeah. particular subclass. That's interesting. By doing that, I, it absolutely, and I believe I took the cleric um, spell list. Oh, no, you did great with it. Daj was a great character. I loved coming up with the stuff to do with him, and I'll, I'll let you talk about that because you said you wanted to. It's just the overall, so I don't want you, I don't want you to take my, my opinion of this subclass as my opinion of that character because not at all, quite the opposite. You took a mediocre patron and turned it into something awesome. Continue. Right, and that's what I really liked about this. Uh, about this, I think you're not wrong, and this is where I made the comment uh, either at the beginning of this episode or sometime during the last episode. If, as a player, you don't have the right storyteller, none of these really sing the way they were meant to sing. I think that could be said of every subclass, though, now. Right, but I think specifically with Warlocks, and certainly with the character I played, for everything I did, it worked because I was playing in a campaign world, homebrew, and with a storyteller, Glenn, who made it work. He found ways. He had a, 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 a deity system. He found the deity that worked with my character. I came up with a basic uh, background. He came up with a way to incorporate his deity system with that background or a way I could fit my background into his deity system. And then he did the right amount of in, uh, of involvement. He had the celestial page, uh, patron show up. Not every single session we sat down, but in all the right moments. There was no time I wanted some kind of insight from the patron that the patron wasn't there. Glenn was always on point with that, and I think it was very critical to this particular subclass. Um, my love of this really comes down to the fact that it is was in that situation, the perfect harmony 
between the player and the storyteller. And I encourage storytellers to keep that in mind when players pick warlocks. Whatever they're doing, you have the ability to make it that much of a better experience for your player with what you do. And specifically with the Celestial, I think its mechanics do everything that it's meant to do and well. I think its flavor was actually a bit less than what you might think. As much as I love it, its flavor was very mediocre for me. It was basically be a healer. That's what the flavor was. And that might be why I feel like it was just a nod to the, the healer. Right. Lock, but know? the mechanics behind the healing was on point. And I, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, I think, Luinica, I think you are exactly right. The only thing that I, I will say about this is uh, the alpha power, searing vengeance. Awesome. 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 Goddamn. Awesome. Oh, no, just I did like that too. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, uh, each creature of your choice that's within 30 feet takes radiant damage of 2d8 plus your charisma modifier, which as a warlock is going to be through the roof anyway, uh, and is blinded until the end of the current turn. Just awesome. Awesome. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And let's be honest. This is my second highest subclass, fact, yeah. The fact that warlocks get that at 14, not 17, not 18, not 256, is what makes that really great. because. I wouldn't necessarily need to take a warlock much beyond 14 and then I could put in something else. And, 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 but I would take it straight to 14 before I'd multi-class anywhere because I would want that ability as fast as I could get my grubby little paws on. <laughs> this is the one where you automatically pass the death save, by the way, that you were thinking of. Oh, it's yes, that's right. You're right. Um, I, yeah, could you imagine like a like a 14th level celestial warlock and a sixth level paladin? Like that's a sexy crossover. So, yeah, anyway, Lewanika, the hexblade. Talk to us about the hexblade. Oh, you left me with that one. So, as I've alluded to in our previous discussions, the hexblade is mechanically strong. Uh, there's <laughs> really an argument. Strong. There's there are arguments about it being OP. I kind of disagree. Because I think most of the abilities it gets are perfect for the level they get them. And they're really in keeping with what other characters are able to do at those levels. Now, what is interesting about the Hexblade is the ingenuity of the player. The specific invocations they get, the specific pack they take, and the spell usage that they, that they use and their strategy, when to spell, when to strike, all of those things can really knock this out of the park. You can overclock the hell out of a combat encounter with this character if you are the right strategy versus the type of monster you're fighting or the type of scenario you're fighting in. And that's why they get that bad rap for being OP. They're not. But if you've got if you call it right, you are hitting that ball in the fat part of the bat often. And that and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, I don't think it's overpowered. I do think that the powers are are not well balanced, and they don't really scale because it's all static assignments of dice or stats or whatever like that. So there's nothing. There's no. There's no tying to anything that proceeds as the character gets stronger or anything like that. You know. So what we wind up with is good powers, but uh, good powers and no scaling make for an interesting mechanical quandary, right? And th so I think you're right, Luanika, that it really depends on how does the player use what they're given, uh, because it's good at lower levels, weaker at higher, and then, uh, you know, so it gets weaker as it kind of goes beyond the scope of most games. Um, and the alpha strike in this case didn't wow me. I would definitely agree with the alpha strike on that one, the, the 14th level ability. I'm like, mm, 
meh. I mean, it's kind of neat, but aside from that, its its abilities are decent, and they are reasonably reasonably spaced in terms of when they get them. I do agree with that from Lee Winiko, but also you're not wrong. They don't scale at all. The biggest reason that uh, I love the Hexblade is I really like the idea of the charisma-based fighter instead of being dex or strength. And then you're throwing in the magic part, but it's coming from the pack. So again, it's that like darker magic version of the Eldritch Knight. It's General Kerrigan. Right. Yeah. And yeah. 100% it's General Kerrigan. Oh, nice, nice reference, Josh. It's about time you finally watched that damn show. <laughs> How long did I fight you to watch that I damn show? I watched it while we're on vacation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading the books now, and they actually the first set of books are actually pretty good. Nice. I, I got the first book. I don't have the rest of them. But anyway, anyway carry on. <laughs> um, yes, yes. Um, so, I mean, obviously, Pact of the Blade. Uh, there's the one argument that I have, which is about its uh, action economy for creating the bound blade. Um, but aside from that, I love it. I think the Hexblood is a great addition. It gives you another way to build a fighter type without necessarily having to be, you know, that frontline dude who's always in the plate mail and whatnot. Medium armor with the Hexblade. It's good. Good choice. Next one, uh, it's funny when we start when I started looking at the Fathomless without uh, without kind of thinking about what book it came from or anything like that. I was looking at the powers and I literally wrote down in my note: nice scaling, tying powers to proficiency bonus. This must be out of Tasha's. I thought that the Fathomless was of of the of the subclasses that I had kind of in the middle of the pack. This was on the higher end of the middle of the pack, you know. But it was it was more interesting. It was super niche. Like I thought that Gift to the Sea was pretty humdrum. Um, I thought that the sixth level power was was just really really niche. That's um, Oceanic Soul, uh, resistance to cold damage. In addition, when you're fully submerged, any creature that's also fully submerged can understand when you're talking. I thought ten. Uh, the the grasping tentacles was a really nice power, um, and that the the alpha strike, the fathomless plunge, uh, was interesting and potentially really useful, but really wasn't a fourteenth level power. Like you know, like that was it was it was underpowered for a fourteenth level power, otherwise interesting. Now, Glenn, I know that you uh, you have some strong opinions apparently on the fathomless, so uh, have at you. <laughs> so. The Fathomless kind of took the brunt of my combined opinions of the great old one and the Fathomless <laughs> rolled into one because the Fathomless is a great old one from the water as opposed to a great old one from the land. They're the same gosh darn thing, right? They took the cosmic horror of the great old one, added in some ocean depths to it. So now it's not just cosmic weirdness, but it's very specific setting cosmic weirdness. This is crap. It's a throw in. It's basically the same thing regurgitated with a vaguely different form. That's how I feel about both of them now. But I started on one, then I got to the other one second. This one took the problem. Okay, but we've been asking them to rewrite everything in the player's handbook. And so here they are rewriting it. And you're saying that it's awful. Okay, fair enough. In the <laughs> rewrite, then, if we consider the Fathomless, the only rewrite that they've ever done of anything from the player's handbook 
with the possible <laughs> exception of the vague, <laughs> vague fix for the Beastmaster and Tasha's. Yeah. If that's the case, then they improved its mechanics, so now it is more mechanically sound. Crap. <laughs> now, Luanika, I know you're you're you've built a fathomless uh, for the uh, for the play by post game that you're playing on the Tangled. Oh, web. my bad, dude. No, no, that's okay. That's why I like yeah. this. It's, it's just, you know. So, so this is where I flat disagree with Glenn. Like, oh, I'm hundred percent disagree with Glenn. I did not make the connection, however, that it was a different version of the great old one. And while I do see that as an option, because you could choose an abolith or you could choose various denizens of the deep uh, to be there. My particular patron happens to be a, uh, a dragon turtle, actually. So I think that's nice. kind of cool. I like that. And my character... Hey, you, ref- you could role-play the crap out of some crap and make it awesome, yeah. so I'm confident the character yeah. will be amazing. It, it, just yeah. to go ahead and build on that point, actually, because I didn't I didn't see the connection to the great old one either. What I saw the connection to were the Greyjoys from uh, Game of Thrones. So, Yeah, uh, nice. Um, and I will say uh, my character refers to his patron as the armored one. <laughs> uh, the armored one of the deep is actually how... Oh, that's nice. Him, that's nice. Uh, fully. Uh, so that's kind of my take on it. But I looked at this and I came to very and vastly different conclusions. So I'm going to run through them very briefly with everybody. I think it was a very strong features. I think there's very, it fills a specific niche and it is very uh, key towards a specific environment. So we've spoken at length about how certain environments or some things are too specific. I do think this falls into that range. So would I play this everywhere? No, but I am playing an assault marsh game. So I felt it was a perfect time to trot this out and see what it could do. It's a good spell list. Uh, I, I think it's the spells here are differentiated from other spell lists. That, by definition, is flavor. Gift to the sea, I get a swim speed. I'm playing in a sea campaign, that's hot, right? If I'm playing in a desert campaign, don't do this. Don't do this subclass. Tentacles of the Deep, it's an, a means of attack that doesn't utilize regular resources. And it's very strong at low levels, moderately strong at intermediate levels. Uh, so that works. And it's a different damage type, that being cold. That's really good. When we go into sixth level, it's not mechanically perfect, but the resistances are very thematic. Uh, resistance to cold is good. If I'm fully submerged, creatures I can talk to, I think it's an interesting ability. Look, there are a lot of mid-level abilities that are not great in this game. This is not the worst of them. Uh, however, it is not the best of the mid-level abilities. What I really liked about the six-level features is Tentacles of the Deep gets a little better. So we've got built-in scaling to that earlier thing with the next feature. I think scaling doesn't necessarily need to be built into every ability or every feature at that level. I think sometimes you can do several minor things, and one of those minor things be bump up some previous thing. And I think that's neat mechanically. When we go on to level 10, we get grasping tentacles. Uh, that's where we get to do some, we get a whole new spell that we get for free. That's not bad, Everd's uh, Black Tentacles. Uh, and, and it doesn't count against the spells you know. So again, adding to what the Warlock can do with no resource cost. Uh, and damage cannot break your concentration on that spell. Where does that ever, ever happen? I can now do a spell that my concentration cannot be broken on. That's exceptionally powerful. 
even if the spell may be a bit lackluster, the fact that it cannot be broken makes it better than, than, than a lot of other abilities. And then finally, Fathomless Plunge. I can teleport to sources of water as long as I knew where they were. We've talked about the ability to teleport and move about being powerful. I don't think this disappoints. Uh, as long as I know where it is uh, and I see it, I can go there. And then at some point, I can actually go with, uh, I can reappear up to a mile away with a body of water. Literally, if you're walking around with a, with a cleric, you can create a, a, a puddle or a, uh, if there's a pond anywhere, you're there. Other than a desert, you're in good shape as long as you know where that, that thing is. I think these abilities are very strong. I don't think they're the best. But I think if you look at the resources they take, which is limited, and what they provide, if you're playing in that specific niche type of campaign, it works really well. But yeah, no, I do agree that they can definitely be cool in the right setting, but they're just so specifically niche. It's just, and they're catching some of that crap too, I'm going to be honest, because we've talked about that a lot, you know. So in my vehemence against the Fathomless, I could see playing it and having fun in a seafaring campaign. And I'm sure that you're going to have an amazing time with it. It just <sighs> didn't do it for me. When we're done recording this, uh, the, my very next thing after we shut down from recording this is going to be to join, go to the play by post site and see what I'm up to next. So <laughs> it's like, I, I am already in love with this character and, um, but it took having to play a specific niche. Uh, so it is, it, and that's the one point I will see. This is only good in a certain type of game. I would, this would be terrible in, um, so many campaigns because of your lack of ability to really do any of the things you're good at. Um, but that doesn't make any of the things it does bad. It just means you got to know when to, when to use. Them. And why is it going to swim speed of 40? I mean, Straight up seals only get like a 30. Because you're connected connected with a power from the deep. I think a water genasi only gets 32, and they're like part <laughs> water elemental. Are we going to go through every aquatic-based race to go ahead and see what their swim speed is to see why it should be uh, should be what the no, warlock just, does? Or? I'm just seeing why, my bad. <laughs> All right, let's carry on to another one out of Tasha's, and that's the genie. Uh, Luanika, tell me what you thought. I loved this subclass. Uh, I really, 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 really do. I love this subclass. I really want to play one. It's a combination of flavorful options, and there are a lot of options here uh, with the various kinds of genie uh, genie patrons. Uh, their spell lists are, are very specific to that type of genie, and I enjoy that, and I think that's great. But then it really comes down to this. Everybody at some point has said, how cool would it be to be Aladdin? Here's the deal. This is how you do it. You play a genie warlock, and you're basically Aladdin. And you've got it. This is a diamond in the rough, and it shines as a uh, utility character that benefits the whole party. Uh, so let's not, let's not go over the deep end with this one. There, Luenica. Okay, this is so. I alluded to this in the last episode when we were just talking about the packed powers and how packed to the tome. If you lose the damn book, it should be a big deal, right? This patron replicates that. That if you lose the vessel that the genie comes in, you can get it back after a short rest. If you're going to tie the powers 
from a patron to something so cool, don't abandon the plot hooks it creates when it when something goes wrong with it. Because like I mean, it's like the player's walking around with the big red button on the back of the Mac, and if you're going to hit it, you got to be able to actually mess with them. This doesn't allow that. You can homebrew it, but the whole point of the matter is that it should be in the book. I don't disagree on this one, and I disagreed previously. On this one, I don't disagree, because what I think is important is one, you can't be trapped. And every single, like, from I Dream of Genie all the way unto uh, Aladdin, Sinbad, all these stories that have grown up with, that deal with, with various djinn, if a mortal got themselves in a bottle and somebody capped it, they're stuck. And some of my favorite episodes of I Dream of Genie, mind you, was when Tony was stuck in the bottle. And I'm dating myself for anybody listening to this podcast. If you're <laughs> old enough to know what I'm talking about, you know that was cool. And those were fun episodes. I think living that is awesome. From a mechanical standpoint, if you're the player character that creates, that has the ability to bring in the party and give them a, 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 a rest in 10 minutes, a short rest in 10 minutes, you're, you're, you're freaking cool. Uh, that's way overpowered. <laughs> like way, way overpowered. I don't like the container at all. It's the only thing about the genie I don't like. I think the container is crap. I think the the entire concept of it is just clunky and weird. The My patron is a genie. That's where I draw my power from. That doesn't mean I'm a genie. Hmm. Just because my patron's a genie doesn't mean that I should have to have my lamp living on, because uh, I dated myself too. This is right out of my notes. Uh, just because my, pa- my patron's a genie doesn't mean I need to live in a bottle on Major Nelson's coffee table. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that, that, that's like straight out of my notes, right? Uh, right, but you don't Aladdin, have to. But to, clo- but to quote Aladdin and Genie, phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. I don't like at all being tied to a lamp or a container, period, regardless of how it's flavored. I think it implies bondage and slavery. And, and I know that's going deeper than we necessarily need to go, but the, the genie being bound to the lamp thing, that was a key part of the, and the player being, b- drawing their power from a genie doesn't mean they're becoming a genie. Why would they be bound to a bottle? It makes no sense. They're not bound to it. It's an option. It's something that they can use to their benefit. Basically they're using, this is how I would flavor it if, if a player came to me or, and certainly how I would ask it to be flavored if I'm playing this in a game. Uh, it's not the lamp is mine in that I've got it. My patron is the genie and the patron provides me a way to hide or a way to rest and a way to protect myself. It would be this would be this lamp. And so I get to go into it because my patron is letting me. It's their lamp. It's their vessel. I just get to sit in there for a while and do good. And if I've been a good patron or a good a, a good warlock for long enough, He's going to let me bring a bunch of my friends so we can party it up and play flip cup inside the, the vessel. I think that's right. cool. In your, in your butthole? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to play some flip cup. That's cool. It's going to be fun. It'll be a good time. Nah, it, it just doesn't do it for me. I don't like the vessel. <laughs> this I, and I, So I will say, too, that uh, I think that this might be the first time that the classes that we saw, the subclasses that we saw in, in Tasha's weren't absolutely heads and shoulders above 
everything else that we saw in the player's handbook in particular, right? I think there, there's some disagreement about whether or not they're good or not, but they every other class that we've ranked so far, the subclasses and Tasha's were far and away the the favorites. And, 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 and we don't see that here, which I just think is an interesting observation. Well, uh, you're not wrong. I don't think this. Uh, I don't. I don't think this weights the scale above uh, everything else. I do think this is a little bit more middle of the road. So, like, while I really want to play one, so I ranked it high for wild card. I ranked it high for want to play. I love the flavor of this thing, so I ranked that high. But its mechanics mm-hmm. only came in about six, so middle of the road. I think you're right. I don't think it's a way out and above. I do think that the damage scales. I do think the resistance comes in at the right level. And I do think that level 14 ability, a limited wish, getting a six-level spell is incredible. That is powerful. I love that ability. And, and, And I think that's not wrong. Yes. A lot of them are middle of the road. Yeah. Middle of the road isn't bad, though. Middle of the road may not stand out and be amazing, but a lot of the things that stand out and be amazing were like, ooh, is that overpowered? Yeah, yeah. no, that's... You know, yeah. middle of the road means this is a solid subclass. I mean, we're, we're looking at it like a negative, but middle of the road isn't necessarily... Uh, and I will say this to your point about the level of the level 14 ability. Um, it's recharge. I do not like that part of the mechanic. And as much as I love that level six ability, the fact that you have to roll a D4 and have that be the number of long rests before you get it back, I do not like that mechanic. That is that is hot garbage right there. And I get why they did it, because you're throwing out an exceptionally powerful spell and you don't want somebody using it on the regular. So I get why it was done mechanically, and I don't think I have a good answer. I do. Don't give anybody any forms of wish as an innate spell ability. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's that. If the given is you want to give the genie, if you want your genie to give a wish, my response would be you get three of them total for X period of time or something like that. And have that period of time be much longer. Like you have to do. That would be a good way to reflavor it. You have, you have to do 90 days of downtime or something like that, or pick some downtime level. Like, you have to be level 14 to get there. Tie it back into the mythology. You get three total, and then the genie, and then the lamp disappears, and you have to find it again. Yeah, there's lots of ways you could. It could be groovy. We homebrewed our own way around it. Let us, uh, let's, di- let's dive into our last one here. Uh, and I'm oh, guessing you don't want me to talk about this one. The Undead Patron, which, again, uh, the first one from the, from the newest book, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft or Everything, depending on your definition. Um, and, uh, you know, again, uh, I hate to kind of leave the episode on kind of a whoopee cushion, but again, it's another kind of mid-level, middle-of-the-road sort of subclass i thought that it was more powerful at the onset than the undying patron but again glenn you talked about this earlier talking about like the fathomless and the great old one is the, the undead is the undead thing. a rewrite of the undying one right like that's you know 100 yes. yes it is um my opening line was 
So having the undead and the undying is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's That's the first line of my right. notes. It, it's also it's also better though, right? It's also better. Like the the undying was not very good. The undead is much better. Like the, I the disagree. Sh- I, I thought that the shift to, to necrotic damage at level six was nice. I thought that tying the self-res to exhaustion at level 10 was really interesting and a mechanic that I really liked. Um and I thought that the alpha level power was was really good. I thought that I thought that spirit projection was actually a really great, and that's a good alpha alpha power for the subclass. You know, you gain some resistances. It gives you some some bodily protection. It gives you some protections. You can fly, all these sorts of things. So, what was it that you didn't like about it, Glenn? So, basically, it, I thought it was tropey and lame. The undying, I thought, had more flavor, and that it could be more extra tropey and lame. Anything un dead from a lich to a vampire i mean it it could already be anything to recreate it as the undead just to make it specifically tropey and lame is dumb my actual theory is what if instead they did something crazy and they took things like the undying and the undead and they combined them and they made them one thing because that's what they freaking are and (laughs) gave you the opportunity to flavor it yourself where Take the two level six abilities and choose one. So I really like that idea. And and here's what I thought about this. I was a bit surprised by this because I don't think it was as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, look, and I think subclasses, when they deal specifically with death, have been a bit hit or miss with 5e. Um, I think most are not great. When we did the cleric episode, there was the uh, grave and then the, uh, there, the other one that came up. And it was very clear that the one in the DMG was specifically to cause damage. It's very clear that it's specifically designed to be a bad guy. It was an early attempt to try to bring undeath and do something with that theme. I think that's where the undying comes from, right? It was the early attempt to try to do that. It didn't work. It was weird. It didn't, it was bad. They try it again with, uh, in Cleric with Grave. They try it again here with the undead interesting that they both happen around the same time or later on uh but i think in the end it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be i would never want to play one it's not my bag but i think there's some things that were kind of cool about it and if i had a player who was thinking of one i would certainly steer them towards this but i love your idea i I love your idea glenn about look combine them of the undying undead Every feature is doubled up. You pick one or the other at, at, at your leisure. So at least you could end up with something that's kind of cool. Uh, I think that that you would do make that a lot of sense. You could do that with the Fathomless and the Great Old One, too. I think it's just they, they're, they're catching the brunt of the fact that I, I expect them to come up with something new, not just respend something they already fed me. And that that's where my, my vehemence is coming from. I'm honestly a little bit offended that they would take the same thing and just kind of reflavor it and spit it back out again. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not gonna disagree with you, Glenn. And I think that that I think that you're right about taking it and making it tropey and weird, because let's keep in mind too, this was in a Ravenloft book. And Ravenloft by its very nature is kind of tropey. Is tropey and weird. Right. Yeah, so, enough. you know, and so like I think it's kind of, you know, but all that to go ahead and say that you're not wrong. I think that I think that the parallels between the undying and the undead are they are the same thing. They really are. And they tried to, they tried to reskin it and it just, it didn't, it was not a successful reskinning. So it kind of, it is what it is. 
I wanted to say this about it. I think, like we've talked about, it can be very niche, but not necessarily towards a specific type of campaign, but definitely towards a specific type of DM. Your six-level features only work if you're the kind of DM that deals with these things. So if you're playing in a game where do we have enough food to eat? Do we have enough water to drink? Do we have enough air to breathe? Those are big issues. This becomes a lot cooler in that kind of campaign with that kind of DM uh, because so many DMs don't deal with that or it comes up so infrequently. Uh, I don't even do it all the time. I do it for specific adventures, but not even campaign-wide per se. Um, my Monday night game is actually a little bit more towards this than I've ever done consistently before, but it's even that it's not every single session. Uh, it's something that's in the world. The players pay attention to, I bring it up when I think we're losing focus on it, but it's not an every session type of thing. So I think a lot of what this class, this subclass does just falls out because you don't deal, you don't deal with it a lot. Uh, and I think that's a big problem. If the meat and potatoes of your game is tier two, your tier two abilities are situational, that's a problem. Okay, so let's try to put some wrapping on, on these subclasses here. Just some observations here. We talk about the sometimes how the subclasses break out book by book, right? And we always we talked a lot about how you know how Tasha's has had really strong subclasses every other time we've looked at them. L looking at the scores far and away, Xanathar's was the winner in this one, where it had it came with both the Celestial and with the Hexblade, two really strong subclasses that were, if not high middle of the road, they were near the top of the pile for, for all three of us. And so that's something I think to go ahead and point out. But also something to go ahead and point out is that the the subclasses as they appeared in the player's handbook, with the exception of the great old one, were very, very playable strong subclasses. And we have not seen that so much in other classes like i think fighter is the exception there but for the most part the player's yeah. handbook subclasses for ranger and rogue in particular were were vastly inferior to anything that came out came out after that i think that comes directly from the fact that warlock didn't exist before 5e did it warlock was originally a 3.5 character classes in one of the latter books uh, so it was not part of the player's handbook or player's handbook 3.5. It was much later that it came out in its original form. It came to its prominence in 4E. That's where it became a real big heavy hitter and became a fan favorite. Uh, so oh, much okay. so that that level of success really demanded its inclusion into uh, 5E. So it has been around for a while. It felt fresh, like they just worked on this as a rewrite. They had just redone it, and that's why I was asking the question. Because again, I was out for a while. I didn't play any of 4E. Um, so like reading Warlock, everything about it was new to me, aside from the time that I was out. But like the whole thing was fresh concept, as yeah. opposed to Rogue's always been a rogue, man. Rogue's going to rogue. Well, if you remember, Glenn, when we played uh, that 3.5 game, uh, with the traveling troop that was touring around the world uh, 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 in that big, long caravan. Uh, and we did that. We played for about two tiers on that before that game uh, ended uh, due to life and blowing up in a way overpowered uh, druid character. Um, uh, when we were playing that, 
I had done a lot of reading on some of the 3.5 stuff that happened after I had stopped playing for a short time. Uh, and uh, so I was familiar with the warlock from that. Uh, nobody chose that. And I was aware of it, but I had never seen one at the table. So I had never played at a table with the 3.5 warlock. I was just aware of the class's existence. Something else to point out about the 3.5 warlock and what might explain why sometimes odd limits or odd odd mechanics are put on the 5e warlocks uh, when it comes to powers and stuff like that, like tying specific things to rest or the smaller available number of spells. In third edition, warlocks could use their invocations an unlimited number of times. They were like cantrips. I think that explains sort of why they've kept the core mechanics the way that they are, but that they put pretty heavy restrictions on when and how they can be used. Warlocks have gotten exceptionally powerful from what I understand, and 5e was the game that put limiters on that, uh, on that process. I think their limiters are largely well-deserved, and they work well and they preserve the core of what the Warlocks could or should be. And while I bristle at it playing Dodge, uh, Dodge, I can tell you it was very challenging to figure out what I was going to cast spells on. And it was a lot of, I'm going to pick the invocations that got things done, or I'm going to do things in a different way. That's why I spend a lot of time focusing on things like equipment or improving skills where you can in 5e, was because my spell count was very limited. And while I have this great healing mechanic, I only had a number of dice equal to the number of levels I was. So I had these huge limiters on me despite having great power. So it forced me as a player to get very inventive and very uh, situational and very tactical about a character who was ostensibly not a tactical character. But it, but I looked at it as innovative. It's one of the reasons why I rarely use wisdom or intelligence as a dump stat. Playing a warlock, I picked both of those up because I was like, I'm going to have to be exceptionally tactical with this character. I need to have a reason to back up that process. Well, that is through our list. We hope you all enjoyed this. Once again, another uh, another interesting class to kind of pick apart and look into. Um, you know, we keep saying this every time we look at these, uh, we learn something new about this particular class, and and I definitely learned things about this. You know, I thought that there were some there were some clear standouts uh, for me uh, in this class. I thought the the celestial was surprisingly good. Glenn, I saw that. You know, you've got the the. You seem to prefer the undying over the undead version of of, uh, of that particular subclass. Again, though, it might just be which one I got to first. <laughs> which one you got overall, to first? Exactly, my disappointment yeah. was the fact that they were kind of the same damn thing. You know, and again, uh, uh, just a, an interesting, uh, an interesting breakout that uh, for once Tasha's did not carry the day uh, in terms of uh, the quality of the subclasses. So, all that to say, we hope that you uh, enjoyed the episode, uh, gentlemen. Anything else that you want to say here before we uh, we sign off for the night? Yeah, I just want to say that as we rank them, I wanted to mention X-Men came out number one, Archfey came out number two, and Celestial came out number three. That's a really nice spread. Um, those And those were all fairly high marked, and I think that's awesome. And I believe, looking across the board, Glenn and I ranked the undead very low. I think my lowest were higher than most people's lowest. Um, but in general, I think the great old one was 
bottom of the barrel. What that was that was bottom of the barrel for everybody. But I will say this: that I believe speaks to the style of game that the three of us enjoy, uh, and the style of characters that the three of us enjoy playing, and our collective lines and veils. As you're looking at these rankings, when you go back to this as a storyteller and people are talking to you about, hey, I want to play X, Y, or Z, keep this in mind. No matter what somebody wants to play for a warlock, be involved. Be involved pre-session zero, at session zero, and every moment thereafter, figure out what's the what's the amount of interaction between the patron and the warlock you want to create. Be innovative with that. Be willing to step aside and homebrew and let your player play. Let your player play because this is a class that really, really can bring the, bring the flavor if you let them play. Agreed. Couldn't say it any better. Everyone out there, um, be watching for the next class ranking uh, survey to be coming out shortly. Uh, we have not even decided the four classes that are going to be on it. So it'll be a surprise to everybody when that comes out. And uh, yeah, otherwise be watching. You know, We're back from vacation now. So uh, keep watching for, uh, for new content. Still putting out two episodes a week uh, uh, between uh, our regular episodes here and also uh, our side quests and actual plays. Uh, there's going to be a bunch more actual play coming out on the channel here. Uh, we're really looking forward to a couple things. We'll be making some big announcements about that in the very near future. But uh, our our goal definitely heading forward here is uh, actual play, actual play, actual play. We want to bring you guys some new exciting stuff that uh, that we have been made aware of and that we're getting involved in. So uh, be watching for that uh, shortly. All right, gentlemen, you have a good night. And listeners, everyone, thank you very much for listening. We will talk to you again next time. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.